to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show. The voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and toquettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Friday, March 10th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 905, and coming up on today's show in the news, Mark and Jody Emery face multiple felony charges in Toronto cannabis culture raids in our can- Cannabis Focus, Amanda Chicago-Lewis on the case for drug war reparations. In drug war data mining, the rad-r.us short link collection for drug war data. In our government at work, Oregon Cannabis Connection takes on the cannabis testing scandal in our state. And in the radical rant, a Georgia senator approves of CBD oil but believes the gateway theory on marijuana. Then in hour two, Kansas moves forward on medical marijuana and we get the first tax collections from legal weed in Anchorage, Alaska. But first, let's get to the cannabis headline news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in four minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your cannabis headline news for Friday, March 10th, 2017. Canada's so-called Prince of Pot and his wife were charged Thursday with multiple drug-related charges after being arrested in Toronto. Lawyer Jack Lloyd said Mark Emery and his wife Jody Emery were taken into custody at Toronto's Pearson International Airport on Wednesday evening. Mark Emery faces 15 counts, including conspiracy to commit an indictable offense, trafficking, possession for the purpose of trafficking, and possession of proceeds of a crime, while Jody Emery is charged with five similar counts. The couple owns the Cannabis Culture brand, which has a chain of 19 marijuana dispensaries operating openly in British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. Police raided Cannabis Culture stores in several cities on Thursday. The Colorado Senate on Thursday passed a first-in-the-nation bill expressly permitting marijuana clubs. But Governor John Hickenlooper is hinting that he'll veto the measure unless it bans indoor smoking. The bill allows local jurisdictions to permit bring-your-own-pot clubs as long as those establishments don't serve alcohol or any food beyond light snacks. The bill doesn't say whether those clubs could allow people to smoke pot indoors. That means it would be possible for a membership club that is close to the public and has no more than three employees to permit indoor pot smoking. Sponsors say the bill is necessary because Colorado already has a network of underground, unregulated pot clubs, and towns aren't sure how to treat them. Pot clubs could help alleviate complaints that Colorado's sidewalks and public parks have been inundated with pot smokers since the state legalized recreational weed in 2012. Colorado is moving to curb the nation's most generous marijuana allowance for medical patients growing their own plants. 
The state house gave preliminary approval Friday to a bill limiting marijuana patients to 16 plants in their homes, down from 99. The measure aims to make it harder to grow pot outside the taxed and regulated commercial pot system. Colorado regulators have tried for years to stop people from growing large amounts of pot without state taxation or oversight. But because Colorado's constitution gives people the right to grow as much pot as their doctors recommend, the state has had a hard time making that happen. Of the 28 states with legal medical marijuana, none but Colorado currently allows more than 16 pot plants per home. The Denver FBI honored a youth dropout prevention group Thursday, apparently without realizing it is partially funded with taxes from the marijuana industry. Youth on Record Executive Director Jamie Duffy mentioned the funding the group receives as she accepted the Director's Community Leadership Award at Denver's FBI headquarters. She said after her acceptance speech that the program that focuses on music received $75,000 in marijuana tax revenue last year from the city of Denver and is expecting an additional $148,000 this year. Three men charged in Norway with selling drugs online have to pay back 120 bitcoins worth $144,300 on top of millions in Norwegian kroner, the first time the Scandinavian country has demanded to be paid in the electronic currency, a prosecutor said Friday. Richard Beck Peterson says the men in their 30s allegedly used underground websites to sell drugs and that most of the payment was done with bitcoins because transactions with the electronic currency have a high degree of anonymity. Beck Peterson said the trio behind the online shops was formally charged Friday with selling drugs. The narcotics were sent by mail to customers. Bitcoin allows people to buy goods and services and exchange money without involving banks, credit card issuers, or other third parties. Prosecutors said six bodies have been dumped on Thursday and Friday around the twin resorts of Cabo San Lucas and San Jose del Cabo at the southern tip of the Baja California Peninsula, which has been the scene of increasing violence in recent months. The prosecutor's office said a woman's body was discovered on a road leading to the airport along with several doses of methamphetamine and marijuana. The bodies of three men were found wrapped in plastic bags and a tarp in San Jose del Cabo, and the bodies showed signs of torture. A man and a woman were found shot to death in the area near the airport. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Friday, March 10th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, the Russ Belleville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. He said he'd love me forever if I smoked crack with him. You got the money? Yeah. Why are you asking? He'd love me forever if I smoked crack with him. He lied. Find out the truth about crack. Drugfreeworld.org.
This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day, exclusively on RadicalRust.com. Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest growing business association in the fastest growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel One on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. All right. Maybe you're high, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they aim you to say that. Are you sure this is legal? I don't know. It's fun, though, isn't it? A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we take a look at a piece on Vice News written by my friend Amanda Chicago Lewis. It's entitled The Case for Drug War Reparations, and it focuses on the problem that we found since marijuana legalization has transpired, and that is it has been locking out people of color. And this has been overt, and it's been it's also been uh, subtle. Uh, there's been a couple of uh, different ways this has happened. The the overt way this has happened is by the legalization laws that lock out anybody who has had a previous drug conviction, like a drug felony for trafficking or selling. When we know the people that overwhelmingly got busted for trafficking and selling were people of African-American descent, Latino descent, and usually younger people. The subtle way in which African-Americans and Latinos are locked out of the marijuana industry are in some of the great capital requirements and political connections that are required to secure marijuana growing or selling licenses or processing licenses. Uh, and again, African-Americans and Latinos start uh, behind in that respect as well, uh, not having the same sort of institutional connections and institutional wealth as white people do. But according to uh, Amanda, a group of lawyers and activists are now offering a solution. On Friday, they are releasing a piece of model legislation that addresses every aspect of marijuana legalization from what will remain illegal to where people can legally get high with the goal of compensating for past and present racial biases. Among other things, the proposal aims to promote diversity in the pot industry and encourages states and municipalities to set aside a significant portion of marijuana tax revenues to provide drug war reparations to people, uh, to communities of color. Uh, that's from Amanda's post. Now, the model legislation is being backed by the Minority Cannabis Business Association. In full disclosure, I'm a member of the MCBA. And the people behind it include a couple of folks that we've had on the show, good friends of this uh, program. 
That would be Shailene Title. She used to be Leap's speaker director, and she's moved on to other uh, consulting jobs, including the Minority Cannabis Business Association, as well as Kayvon Kalatbari, uh, the weed entrepreneur in Colorado, uh, who has uh, recently announced plans to run for mayor of Denver. Uh, they and others have been a part of drafting this legislation that takes some of the best of the current legalization uh, initiatives and expands on those. While the parts that uh, create the uh, the fund to help communities of color are very important and the way that it's written so that communities of color aren't locked out of the licensing procedure are fantastic. But I also want to cover the rest of this because I, I feel that uh, while Amanda did a great job on this uh, piece, and I agree that, you know, the subject of it is about drug war reparations, there's a whole lot in this model legislation that will apply to everyone who is a cannabis consumer, even if you're a white male. So I wanted to take a look at a lot of what they've got in here, because I think if this becomes the model for cannabis legislation across the country, this could be Really good news for us. So uh, I'm looking through it. You can find this also at news.vice.com. Just look for the piece about drug war reparations. And uh, the first thing that I love about this is the reform of civil and criminal penalties. It's section two says, notwithstanding any law, regulation or ordinance to the contrary, no person shall be arrested, prosecuted, penalized, fined, disciplined, sanctioned, disqualified, restricted or denied in any right, entitlement, benefit or privilege subject to the seizure or forfeiture of any profit, uh, property or asset for possessing, using, cultivating, purchasing, processing, manufacturing, transporting, offering, selling, marketing, transferring, testing, providing or sharing cannabis plants, cannabis in any form, drug paraphernalia, or other cannabis-related goods or services. Let me uh, let me shorten that for you. You can't be discriminated against because you're a cannabis consumer or grower or processor or tester. No more discrimination over marijuana. So right there, that is a strong piece of legislation. If we can get that passed in the states, that would damn near put us on equal footing with cigarette smokers and alcohol drinkers other than the federal prohibition. In uh, the paragraph B, they put together their schedule for possession offenses. And this is their suggestion for model legislation as we move forward as states want to legalize. This is what they're suggesting. Possession of less than and including 2.5 ounces, including concentrates, edibles, and liquids, by people 21 and older, she'll be completely legal. Now, that's following along with the precedent set by the state of Maine. They allow two and a half ounces, including concentrates, although the Maine legislature is trying to reduce the concentrate limit. Greater than two and a half ounces, less than a pound, they say should be a misdemeanor with up to a $500 fine, no more than three months in jail. Two and a half ounces to a pound, except... That the marijuana that you grow from your legal cannabis plants don't count. Doesn't count, right? So if you come up, you know, you grow a pound and a half off your six cannabis plants, they're not going to bust you for the misdemeanor or the felony. The possession of your harvest will be legal under this act. Then they mandate that anything greater than a pound possession, less than 50 pounds, should be a misdemeanor, $1,000 fine, up to a year in jail. So this 
sort of legislation as a model would say you can't get a felony for cannabis unless it's over 50 pounds. As far as cultivation, they're saying growing up to uh, up to five mature plants equal to or fewer than. Oh, I got equal to or fewer than. So six mature plants up to six mature plants. Absolutely legal for an adult. They say from six to 20 mature plants. No crime, but a $250 fine. So in essence, this would decriminalize up to 20 plants per person. Again, far greater than what we're allowing currently in the legal states. First offense for more than 20 mature plants would be a misdemeanor, $500 fine, three months in jail. Second offense for 20 plants or over, or more than 20 plants would be a felony, $2,500 fine, 18 months imprisonment. They continue to list a bunch of penalties when we talk about kids or near schools and so forth. We'll skip past those real quick. Uh, They do present that manufacturing hash and concentrates without a license, unauthorized manufacturer, first offense, misdemeanor, $500 fine, six months jail, second subsequent offenses, felony, $2,500 fine, no more than 18 months in jail, and chemical manufacturer, that would be your solvents, uh, felony, $2,500 fine, 18 months in jail. They also list in Section 3, relief from sentences, penalties, and court costs for prior offenses. This is the part that's like uh, California's Prop 64, where if something has been made legal, then the people who were previously busted for that can apply to have their sentences reduced or completely eliminated based on the fact that what they did is now legal or penalized less than it used to be. We also have a Section 4, Sentencing Enhancements and Offender Classification Restrictions. So again, they can't use uh, what you did that was illegal back in the day that's legal now. They can't use that to enhance a sentence for some other crime. This happens to people like when they get a, uh, a they have a third strike law and, you know, they say, oh, well, you were busted for a joint. That's your third strike. You won't be able to do that uh, under this suggested act. As far as criminal records, they give the option for people to be able to get their records expunged. This uh, draws a lot from what we've done in Oregon with our legalization. And now Section 6. I freaking love Section 6. No employer may establish any policy or practice that prohibits any cannabis-related activity made lawful under this act when employees are not on duty. It would basically ban employment discrimination over legal cannabis smoking. But even better, they set it up. They say no employer may establish policies or practices that are more restrictive for on-the-job use of or intoxication due to cannabis than those for on-the-job use of or intoxication due to alcohol. No employer may restrict the smoking of cannabis by employees on or near a work site in a manner more restrictive than that for the smoking of tobacco by employees, except that an employer may restrict the on-the-job use of or intoxication due to cannabis in a manner consistent with this paragraph. In other words, if you work in a place that allows you at lunch to go out and have a beer during lunch and the company is cool with you coming back, in that level of intoxication, then they have to allow you that level of use and intoxication for cannabis. If they have a smoke break section, got a place outside where employees can go smoke tobacco on their break, you can go out there and smoke cannabis during your break as well, as long as the place allows you to be as impaired as people that use alcohol during work. 
In other words, this would be equal workplace rights for marijuana consumers. If you're going to allow intoxication from alcohol and you're going to allow people to smoke cigarettes on their break, then you're going to have to allow people to take smoke breaks for cannabis. Now, that might be controversial, might be a dangerous uh, uh, sentiment to put in this law. But damn it, it sure is fair, isn't it? It sure is just. Maybe that'll get him to think about other drug use in the workplace. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to shoot you. All right. The bill also includes protection from discrimination in housing as well. Protection for public accommodation. Any place you can drink or smoke in public, you can smoke marijuana. This is a great, great bill. If you'd like some information on it, send me an email, radicalrust at gmail.com. we got to take a break. We're back with some drug war data mining right after this. When you are starting up a medical cannabis business, you want a fired-up lawyer who understands the needs of cannabis consumers. The Law Office of Lauren Vasquez is your fired-up lawyer for the cannabis industry. Visit her website, fireduplawyer.com, or call 1-855-MMJ-LAWS for more information. That's 855-665-5297 for Lauren Vasquez, your fired-up lawyer, or email fireduplawyer at gmail.com. You're not high. You're listening to The Russ Belleville Show. Some of the people who were taking marijuana for those purposes, the coroner uh, believed after they died there was drug interactions. Okay, maybe you're high too. This is Radical Russ Belleville with a word about stone driving. Numerous studies have shown once you factor in age and gender, drivers with cannabis in their system have no statistically greater risk of motor vehicle crashes than sober drivers. But that doesn't mean you ought to be toking and driving. Those studies are referring to people with any amount of THC or metabolite in their system, not people who've just smoked marijuana. Simulators and observed demonstrations show that cannabis consumers do develop a tolerance to the impairing effects of marijuana and can perform driving tasks within an acceptable margin of safety. However, infrequent and novice consumers do not and cannot and would be wise to never take and drive. Even regular cannabis consumers should exercise caution before deciding to drive, as most state laws punish drivers harshly if they're discovered to have marijuana in their system. This has been a public service announcement from the Russ Belville Show. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy, because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Over the years, as I have fought numerous drug war debates online, I have used my own custom short link service to collect websites that are invaluable for debunking drug war mythology. If you don't know about short links, uh, you may have seen hyperlinks that come from something called bit.ly, bit.ly slash, and then there's usually six or seven letters or numbers that'll follow it. The short link services are used on the internet to take really long URLs and then compress them to something that'll fit in a tweet. So short link services have been around for a while. There's bit.ly, there's owly, there's a whole bunch of them. 
uh, t.co and and the rest and again they're they're chosen because they take up fewer characters within the 140 characters allowed in a tweet my service is rad-r.us in fact if you want to get to this very window to uh, watch the show every day you can type in rad-r.us and press enter on your browser it'll take you right here but if you add a slash and another code you can get to many of the different websites that I have cataloged over the years in my research to win drug war debates. And I thought I'd share some of these with you on a page that I've put up at weednews.co. You can go to weednews.co slash R-A-D-R-U-S, weednews.co slash radrus, R-A-D-R-U-S. That'll take you to the list, which is currently at 68 links that I've collected. I'll just uh, give you some of the most popular ones, the best ones you can use. And you do have to keep in mind when you type these in, the code after the slash is case sensitive. So you got it. The capitalization is going to matter on that. For example, uh, you may have heard many times uh, people have accredited to uh, or have credited to Abraham Lincoln, a couple of quotes about prohibition. There's one that claims that, uh, Prohibition is a disservice to the cause of temperance, et cetera, et cetera. There's another one that claims that Abraham Lincoln uh, smoked a pipe of sweet hemp while he played his honer harmonica. So I've had to debunk these so many times, I added short links for them. You can go to rad-r slash rad-r.us slash capital A, capital L, honer, H-O-H-N-E-R in small letters capital A, capital L, small H-O-H-N-E-R for the debunk on the harmonica quote, capital A, capital L, small prohib to debunk the Abraham Lincoln prohibition quote. So that's basically how they work. But I've got also got databases and statistics and tables and websites that are completely accessible through these short links. Uh, if you'd like to see the National Conference on State Legislatures ballot database, you can find that at rad-r.us slash ballot db with a capital B. If you'd like to find the National Cancer Institute's database, it's at slash cancer db with a capital C. We've got a couple of different uh, links to find the prices of marijuana, a few different price uh, links here. For California, you can go to slash capital CA dash small price, slash CA dash small price, slash capital CO dash small price, or slash WA dash small price for California, Colorado, or Washington's price of marijuana. And these are sites that show the decline in the price of marijuana since those places have legalized marijuana. We've been talking a lot about the coal memo. The U.S. Department of Justice memo that since 2013 has allowed the states to legalize marijuana, you can find that by going to slash coal memo, and you have to capitalize the C and the M in memo, slash coal memo, with the rad-r.us before that. For the memo that covers Indian country, the one that came out shortly after the coal memo that said the Indian nations are also able to legalize marijuana within their territories. That's at slash Wilk memo, capital W, capital M, Wilk, W-I-L-K memo. 
Now, as we look through the rest of these, a whole bunch of great uh, government data is available through my short links as well. The CDC conducts the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. They ask them about their use of drugs and alcohol. You can find this at slash CDCYRBS for CDC Youth Risk Behavior Survey. We can also find the DEA's schedule of controlled substances. If you want to look up which schedule a drug is on, you can find that at slash DEA schedule with a capital DEA. If you'd like to learn more about asset forfeiture, you can find a link for slash forfeiture report. That's a capital F for forfeiture and report capital R there, but abbreviate report. It's just RPT forfeiture slash forfeiture report. We've got information on marijuana and driving. Uh, the famous test that was done in Washington State on TV where all day Addie, the medical marijuana patient, was able to drive okay up until she got 56 nanograms per milliliter in her system. You can find that at slash Cairo test, K-I-R-O being the TV station, capitalize the K-I-R-O part, slash K-I-R-O in capitals, Small letters, T-E-S-T. For more driving information, we've got the links available as well at weednews.co slash radrus, R-A-D-R-U-S. We've got the lung cancer studies. We've got a Massachusetts driving test. We've got all of the text of all of the winning legalization initiatives available. B-roll footage of good-looking marijuana smokers. D-U-I-D information. A whole bunch of links on Kevin Sabet to take a look at. Drug-sniffing dogs, welfare drug testing, welfare facts, it's all there. Weednews.co slash R-A-D-R-U-S. We're back with a look at Oregon Cannabis Connection exposing the cannabis testing scandal in Oregon. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie's Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of the Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. A substance that half Americans think should be legal and more than two-thirds say the states should be free to regulate. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they... Amy, say that. It's no bong. It's for my schlong. A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Reforming America's marijuana prohibition laws takes education, lobbying, and voting. From Washington, D.C. to your state capitol to your city hall, marijuana law reform involves all levels of civic life. 
Learn how you can make your impact with elected officials as we take a look at our government at work. As we continue to regulate the production, processing, and retailing of cannabis here in the state of Oregon, being one of the first states, we run into the first problems that any of these particular programs have to deal with. And I want to turn now to a report that's in the Oregon Cannabis Connection. It's written by Keith Manser, and it does a fantastic job of taking a look at the issue of pesticide testing here in the state of Oregon and with respect to marijuana generally. The piece is entitled Oregon Cannabis Testing Realities. Many concentrates are contaminated with pesticides. Keith writes that industry experts say suggested changes to the rules would open the door to pesticide-tainted cannabis on Oregon's dispensary shelves, while others accuse labs of collusion to keep prices high. It opens by discussing how the Oregon Health Authority is proposing administrative rule changes that would dial back pesticide testing on flour and concentrates. Currently, the testing is a single annual test on concentrate processors, and I'm saying they would reduce the testing to a single test for concentrate processors and only screening 20% of cannabis flower batches for the recreational market. The current testing rules require testing of a third of the cannabis flower batches. OHA and OLCC suggest these changes are needed because of the backlog in pesticide testing and the fact that we've got very few pesticide labs that are certified in this state. But the, uh, this has been something that's been a, a big concern here in the state of Oregon. We've seen it manifest in shortages on our pot shop shelves, inability of the store owners to keep their shelves stocked with flour and concentrate as this backlog has caused many of the processors and producers to not be able to get the product to the retailers. This has led to uh, not just shortages, but increases in prices and more diversions into the black market. As some of these processors, some of these growers fed up with testing regulations that are shifting and changing and bars that are too high to clear or too expensive to deal with, just go back to the way they used to do things by setting up uh, a little uh, table and a desk and selling to people at a party or by meeting people in a parking lot or joining, finding them at a cannabis lounge or some other place and continuing the same sort of black market transactions, underground market transactions that we've usually had up until we've legalized marijuana. The issue came to a head last year and the, the entity in charge of this is called the uh, Oregon Environmental Laboratory Accreditation Program, ORLAP. ORLAP is in charge of accrediting the laboratories that then test the cannabis flower and test the concentrates. And when they first made these rules about testing for pesticides and molds and all the rest of this, the folks at ORLAP said, oh, wait a minute, we got a problem because as it is right now, we don't have enough testing labs because it's not just the cannabis these labs test. They test other agricultural products. They test all sorts of things, shellfish, all sorts of things for contaminants. And they were already backlogged and having some problem before cannabis got added to the mix. Gary Ward, he was the former ORLAP administrator, warned last year that the program was on the verge of collapse. Back in September of 2016, he said, quote, 
Because of the lack of resources, the accreditation of both cannabis labs as well as drinking water labs were going to be seriously affected, end quote. It became a complete disaster. And he says the stress from his position the narrow, and the narrow timeline involved brought about a heart attack. <laughs> it's so stressful over this testing situation. The guy in charge of it had a heart attack and retired in January. We saw flower shortages all through the winter, thanks to the uh, backlog. Um, it's starting to recover. We're doing a little bit better. Now we're seeing the shortage in concentrates on the shelves due to these pesticides testing failures. And edibles, since they're usually made from concentrate, not from direct from flour, the edible companies are behind and having short shortages on the shelves as well. This has a lot to do with the changes in testing costs. The testing of cannabis originally had no regulation had for about two years. And so what happened is you had some decent labs, but you also had some unscrupulous labs that set up with the idea of we'll run our tests as fast and cheap as possible so you can get your get that product flow and get it on the shelves. Some of the full screen tests when this first started were as low as 100 bucks. But as times change and Oregon got around to this, they decided that these had to be NELAP TNI certified. This is a standards organization for testing. This is a National Environmental Laboratory Accreditation Program, NELAP. And so they started accrediting and setting the standards for these uh, labs. And, and the good labs, they just weathered the storm. They just, all right, we got these more conditions we got to deal with. But the bad labs just uh, continued on. And so by 2015, independent certifying agencies were pointing out they were ready to start accrediting some of these uh, samples or some of these some of these labs. And OLCC was given authority to change the testing rules. Orlap, according to Keith uh, in this piece, Orlap received nearly 30 applications for lab certification, but by October 2016 testing deadline, only four had been fully approved to do the full array of required tests, including pesticides. Six months later, 19 labs have been certified to do at least a portion of testing, but there are still only seven labs in the whole state of Oregon capable of doing the pesticide testing in-house, and only six labs capable of doing the full array of testing required by law. Even so, with just six of these labs that can do the full spectrum, most of the backlog's been taken care of, and the labs are now turning around tests in a week or two. Now, how these tests are being considered, some of the results of this, the motivation of this, the reason why everybody's so concerned about the test is once we started doing it here in Oregon, we were finding a large amount of pesticide test tainted concentrates. So some of the accredited labs have reported up to a 70% failure rate on the concentrates they were testing. Seven out of 10 samples they would test failing to meet the standards for safety for the consumers. And over 20% of the flour they tested coming up as failures. Now, OHA, on the other hand, Oregon Health Authority came up with, with lower numbers. OHA was saying the failure numbers were 26% on concentrates and 10% on flour. So, 
OHA was underestimating just how contaminated Oregon's cannabis products really were. It's about three times as bad on the concentrate side and about twice as bad on the flower side, about two and a half times worse on the concentrate side. According to the report, one of the more common contaminants being found is carbaryl. This is the active ingredient in the pesticide 7. It's especially toxic and is found surprisingly often, which is not very good news for us cannabis consumers here in Oregon. However, while many of us are concerned about uh, unscrupulous actors pushing through their tainted products in less than accredited labs and getting it on the shelves to harm our health. Others believe that this is really all about the testing industry and the labs trying to collude to create more testing regulations just so they can make more money. According to Keith Manser's report, there is even a chatter of a class action lawsuit against some labs for collusion and market tampering. Don Morse, president of the Oregon Cannabis Business Council, told the Oregonian, quote, they want the most testing at the highest cost they can charge, end quote. Now, uh, when OCC, Oregon Cannabis Connection, got in touch with Morse and asked about the shortage problem and any proof that these labs are colluding, he said, quote, the OHA rules as written were over the top, and they were written by a group of people who did not fully comprehend their impact on the industry, which has been catastrophic. People can't get their product to the market. It's too cumbersome and too expensive. The testing rules are certainly taking a much larger toll on processors and edible makers and topical makers. That's where it's really hurting the industry. They're using distillates and they're using concentrates or they're just selling concentrates and it's harder to find clean concentrates. End quote. He also adds, quote, the people at the table originally coming up with these rules were the labs and some healthcare people and some poison control people. There were no industry there. It was the labs. And while some may be believing that they are acting in the best interest of health and public safety, I don't think it's a stretch to say without opposing points of view there that some might be interested in making rules that were in the best interest of their industry. End quote. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like proof of any collusion. It sounds like opportunity, maybe motive, maybe, but no proof necessarily. The folks at uh, the OHA disagree with these uh, with these uh, claims by Don Morse. Their spokesperson said, quote, the Rules Advisory Committee did include representatives of marijuana testing labs, but also representation from other parts of the industry, including processors, dispensaries, patients, caregivers. Labs have no more influence over the rulemaking process than other members of the Rules Advisory Committee. Additionally, the rules are OHAs under the advisement of the Rules Advisory Committee, and ultimately OHA is responsible for writing and filling the final rules for consideration, end quote. Now, some of what they're going to be doing is to try to reduce how much testing has to happen and how much of the product has to be tested. And some of these large-scale producers are pointing out that when you do this at the economy of scale, you can really reduce how much testing has to do with your overall price. Don Morse said, 
quote, by the time a product gets to the retailer and is sold to the customer, 25% of the cost of that product is attributable to the testing. First, you have to pay the testing on the flour. Then you have to take it and test the oil again. And that's where the cost increases dramatically, end quote. But John Thompson, better known as JT of Sublime Solutions, says that's ridiculous. He says, uh, I will be able to make batches of 28,000 grams. What my client is going to pay is just a few pre-screening costs and for the compliance test, which will cost about $7,000. So working through the math on this, uh, according to this report, they say the testing and batching costs for cannabis flour is a dime to 20 cents per gram, according to most growers and labs. Batches that are larger can be as low as a nickel per gram. But they say a very small garden would be no more than 20 cents a gram to test and bag their flour. The batch test on concentrates can be... At absolute worst case, they say, $5 a gram. That's pretty high, but if you are able to submit what's called a control study, they'll be able to allow the concentrates to be tested at the same rate per gram as flour. They say with more process validation and the control study method, a cost of under $0.03 per gram for concentrate testing would be normal. He says currently with uh, his tests of 4,000 grams of product at $700, $800 for two tests, the cost for concentrate testing drops to 20 cents per gram. JT explained, quote, this current push about pesticides, it's coming from a small number of people that are crying, oh, it's so expensive. And it actually isn't when you consider what the margins are. This is normal business cost. And if you can't budget for it and have a model that's going to make you competitive, that's your fault. And you're not going to be competing on the playing field too long, end quote. So other folks disagree. Uh, Caleb Hayes of Oregonians for Public Health and Safety say the draft rules are absolutely 180 degrees the wrong direction for health and public safety in Oregon. And also 180 degrees the wrong direction for the cannabis industry in Oregon. This is going to lead to new stories of contaminated cannabis in the market. And that will have a chilling effect on our economy in the cannabis space. And this is the difficulty we face in the first states to legalize marijuana. If we set the testing uh, testing procedures too strictly, then the price gets too high. We get backlogs. We get uh, we get a, a, cr- a crunch in the production. We get a crunch in the in the inventory, and then that leads people to turn back to the underground market. But if we don't set the standards high enough. People end up getting tainted cannabis. We start hearing about recalls. We start hearing about public lawsuits, uh, health lawsuits, and that could hurt the industry. So it's incumbent upon Oregon to find that sweet spot, to find out how we can establish a safety uh, profile for cannabis that will protect the public health and safety that we can rely on, but doesn't so unduly burden the producers and processors and retailers of the cannabis to raise the price beyond what it should normally be. We'll find that sweet spot. It's going to take a lot of trial and error, but I think we can do it. This entire expose can be found at Oregon.